Now we've been talking about sanctification by faith or better, more accurately, how to stop sinning. How to overcome sin. Now, I have before me here two of Watchman Nee's books, which I have read more than one time. I don't remember how many times. I see several different colors of markers or different pens are written through them. And uh, I've probably had uh, some of these uh, for about 40 years, I guess. I've got a whole shelf I've kept. I threw away most of them, but I kept a whole shelf of them just for reference. And uh, I suppose I still have 25 of these Christian life books, maybe, maybe more. I haven't counted them. I have before me here Watchman Nee's The Release of the Spirit. The reason I'm doing this, by the way, is because this gospel I teach, this gospel the Bible reveals of sanctification by faith, is not held by the majority of the church today. And those who don't hold it hold something, if they hold anything at all, akin to what Watchman Nee's teaching. Watchman Nee has put it together better than anybody. He summed up all the writers and said this as best as it can be said. Only one other book I think rivals his, and that's Roy Hessian's The Calvary Road. It's short, to the point, and cuts deep. This is not going to bless your socks off. I don't get blessed preparing notes to criticize what somebody else wrote. It almost makes me grumpy. I just don't enjoy doing that. I know there are a lot of Christians out there who've read Watchman Nee, and he's the center of their Christian life. I know that. I know that his teachings is the heart and soul of everything they believe. And for them to hear that Watchman Nee was a heretic just <laughs> really unseats them. And I don't enjoy doing that. I don't enjoy upsetting someone's foundation in that area. But the reason I do this is I could be talking about Norman Grubb or Aaron Thomas or Stephen Kong or Gene Edwards or Andrew Murray or any number of other writers who taught exactly the same thing Watchman Nee teaches. But Watchman Nee is the latest best at it. He did a better job of putting this era together than anyone else. And he did a better job of making this era believable than anyone else. And he's probably the most popular writer with everyone in this area. And so I'm using him for those reasons. And if I can, in your mind, dispose of Watchman Nee's era to you, then I have disposed of the era of all the others at the same time. You say, well, what's the need to dispose of Watchman Nee's era? Simply this, as we've been teaching on how to overcome sin, we've come across many verses of scripture and many bits of terminology that are biblical. And Watchman Nee has created a whole range of terminology using biblical words, but giving them a different content. And he's taken the very verses that we've taught how to overcome sin and given a different meaning to those verses by taking them out of their context. And I feel like until we go back and uncover his error, the way that he handled, mishandled this scripture, that we really can't rest our case with those out there who are rooted and grounded in this error and have been for many, many years. Amen. Now, I'm going to start off this morning by reading some of Watchman Nee's passages that present the gospel as clearly, probably, let's say, more clearly, 
than what present I present the true gospel, the gospel of sanctification. Verses in his own book that present the gospel of how to overcome sin accurately and clearly. Now, it's because he starts there that he becomes so effective and then creates such confusion. It's because much of what he teaches is the absolute truth. It's what he adds on to the end of it that turns it into an error. But listen to this, page 42 of The Normal Christian Life, Tyndale House Publishing, July 1986, page 42. But how can we die? He's presented the idea that we need to die, the old man. How can we die? Some of us have tried very hard to get rid of this sinful life, but we found it most tenacious. What is the way out? It's not by trying to kill ourselves, but by recognizing that God has dealt with us in Christ. This is summed up in the apostle's statement. All who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. But if God has dealt with us in Jesus Christ, then we've got to be in him for this to become effective. And that now seems as big a problem. How are we to get into Christ? Here again, God comes to our help. We have, in fact, no way of getting in, for we are in. What we could not do for ourselves, God has done for us. He has put us into Christ. Let me remind you of 1 Corinthians 1.30. I think that is one of the best verses of the whole New Testament. Ye are in Christ. How? Of God. Praise God. You're in Christ. It is not left to us either to devise a way to enter in or work it out. We need not plan how to get in. God has planned it. He's not only planned it, he has performed it. Of him are you in Christ Jesus. We are in. Therefore, we need not try to get in. It is a divine act and it is accomplished. Now, I couldn't say it any better. That's said beautifully, is it not? Then he says this, page 45. I challenge you to find one text in the New Testament telling us that our crucifixion is in the future. I've never said it better. All the references to it are in the Greek aorist, which is once for all tense, the eternally past tense. That's absolute gospel truth, he said. Page 47. When therefore the Lord Jesus was crucified on the cross, he was crucified as the last Adam. All that was in the first Adam was gathered up and done away in him. We are included there. As the last Adam, he wiped out the old race. As the second man, he brings in the new race. It is in this resurrection that he stands forth as the second man. And there too, we are included. Scripture. For we have become united with him by the likeness of his death. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Romans 6, 5. Now that's a corrupt translation, but you can probably decipher the scripture in it. We died in him as the last Adam. We live in him as the second man. The cross is thus the mighty act of God which translates us from Adam to Christ. Now that's good gospel. You won't find any fault in that. Page 48, he says this. Our old history ends with the cross. Our new history begins with the resurrection. I say amen to that. Then in page 50, he says... But what is true of your forgiveness is also true of your deliverance. The work is done. There is no need to pray, but only to praise. God has put us all in Christ. 
so that when Christ was crucified, we were crucified also. Thus, there's no need to pray, quote, I'm a very wicked person, Lord, please crucify me. So he says there's no need to pray that. We are crucified. That's perfectly clear, perfectly accurate gospel of sanctification as the word of God presents it, just as you've heard me teach it. Page 51, I was crucified when Christ was crucified, or Christ was crucified when I was crucified, for they are not two historical events, but one, he says. It's hard to see how he's going to get from this to heresy. <laughs> Page 57, oh, it's a great thing to see that we're in Christ. Think of the bewilderment of trying to get into a room in which you already are. Amen to that. And page 100, when I really know I am crucified with him, then spontaneously I reckon myself dead. And when I know that I'm raised with him from the dead, then likewise I reckon myself alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Amen, that's the truth. When you know it, reckoning is a spontaneous thing that requires no effort or energy or acts or preparation of heart on your part. That's what I said. Page 66, he says, it is not reckoning toward death, but from death. I've never said it so short and sweet and direct and well as that. It is not reckoning toward death, but from death. I will try to memorize that phrase and use that again in the future when I'm preaching. It's not reckoning toward death, he said, but from death. Absolutely accurate. Now, you said, then how could he... How could he end up teaching heresy? How could you call him a heretic? Because of where he goes after this. If from there you went where I took you, where the word of God takes us. If from there you went to this. That this is a divine reality. That all Christians have been crucified with Christ, dead, buried, and raised again. You're alive unto God. You're free from sin. As watchman that me and I both have taught. If we went from that and said, okay, now then that we're dead to sin and free from it. We can, by faith, reckon ourselves to be dead and sin no more based on the victory that's already been won. So, the next time you're tempted, just say, I am already dead to this, I'm already free from this, I'm alive unto God, I will not sin. And the next time you're tempted, you will not sin, you will overcome sin, and you'll walk in victory. And continue to practice and believe this, until the day you die, and as you do, you will mature in the Christian faith, and more and more you'll walk in perfect holiness until your life is totally transformed into the image and character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, we got the gospel. We got the whole complete message. Need nothing more than that. But once Watchman Nee has said this, what he said so far, he loses his confidence that this will work. It's like when Abraham said, yes, I'm the father of a great nation. Bring me Hagar. Yes, I'm the father of a great nation. But I'm afraid I can't produce any babies. At least my wife can't. I maybe have a year or two left. So bring Hagar to me and I'll produce one through her and we'll give that to God. And I think that'll satisfy the criteria that he's made me a father of a great nation. Now, what Watchman Nee fails to see is that men can believe God and this miracle can happen right now. He thinks that there must come some kind of work in the carnal heart, in the fleshly man, in the soul, 
There must be an ongoing, lengthy, protracted work in the individual to get him into a place to where he can believe and this thing can happen. And I'm going to show you that from his text, what he says. All right, here's his reasoning. Here's how he begins to, to, to flow. Page 176. It is a historic fact that in Christ Jesus my old man was crucified and it is a present fact that I am blessed with every spiritual blessing having places in Christ. But, <laughs> watch out for those buts. But, I do not live in the Spirit. But if I do not live in the Spirit, then my life may be quite a contradiction the fact that I'm in Christ. For what is true of me in Him is not expressed in me. I may recognize that I'm in Christ, but I may also have to face the fact that, for example, my old temper is very much in evidence. What is the trouble? Now, what would my answer be from the Word of God at that point? I'd say the trouble is that your old temper is dead and you need to believe it. When you have a sense to exercise temper, say in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm dead to this, I'm alive, I'm free. And let the character of Christ flow through you and you will not have temper. He said, what is the trouble? It is that I'm holding the truth merely objectively, whereas the truth objectively must be made true subjectively that is brought about as I live in the spirit. So he says, the problem is that you're holding the truth objectively, but you haven't taken it in subjectively. And he says, it must be made true subjectively. Here, he's just made an allowance for a process to take place in you now so that reality is created in you now that reflects that past reality. Now, that's subtle. Some of you won't get that. What I'm teaching, what the Word of God teaches is that my death was complete and total and full in the past. And that's the reality. I don't have to recreate that death or that dying or that subjection in this present life. That's already done. I live in the faith of what's already done to me. I don't make that something subjective in my being right now through some process. You'll see it as we go on. Page 63. When we know that our old man has been crucified with Christ, then the next step is to reckon. I would never say it that way. The Bible does not say it that way. You see, he separated knowing and reckoning. We don't know one day and then in the future reckon. You reckon the moment you know. And in fact, he's already told us that. So unfortunately, in presenting the truth of our union with Christ, the emphasis has too often been placed upon the second matter of reckoning ourselves to be dead. He recognizes the problem that has existed in his own ministry. I'll read it again. The emphasis has too often been placed upon his second matter of reckoning ourselves to be dead as though that were the starting point, whereas it should rather be upon knowing ourselves to be dead. God's word makes it clear that knowing is to precede reckoning. No, it doesn't. You see, he, he's thinking in terms of steps. Knowing this, reckon, the sequence is most important. Our reckoning must be based on knowledge of divinely revealed fact. The otherwise faith has no foundation on which to rest. When we know, then we spontaneously reckon. Now that's true, see. So much of that is true, except the fact that he's starting to divide knowing and reckoning into steps. 204, when we come to deliverance from sin, we again have three steps. Three steps, the Holy Spirit's work of revelation, knowing, 
the crisis of faith or reckoning and the continuing consecration or presenting ourselves to God on the basis of a walk in newness of life. Now he's gone so far as to divide this sanctification into three steps. And he's added a phrase. He said the second step after knowing is the crisis of reckoning. A crisis of reckoning. In other words, these Christian life teachers teach that the Christian must come to this place of brokenness to where he begins to see his sinfulness, come under this heaviness of spirit and burden of his own carnality, and it takes years. Watchman, he suggested one writing, 10 years. And you come to this crisis in your life, your personal life, to where some writers say, at that point, I died. They say, I was crucified that day after being saved 10 or 15 or 20 years. So he sees this reckoning now as an event separate from the knowing. And the third step is consecration. And if you follow his writings and the writings of the others, this consecration requires a commitment of your will. Requires a presenting your body living sacrifice. It requires laying down your life. It requires dying to your self-interest and self-will. In other words, it requires an ongoing process which you work in your soul and body on a daily basis, which then creates an insurmountable problem to people being sanctified. Because most of us don't have the will to make that kind of commitment. We don't have the strength to lay our lives down. We don't have the strength to put off the old man with his deeds. We are in bondage and in slavery to sin, and the only way we can get free from it is the miracle of counting ourselves to be dead and free instantly by what God did in Jesus Christ and did to us. In 206, he says, It may help us if we recognize four aspects of the redemptive work of Christ, but in doing so is essential to keep in mind that the cross of Christ is one divine work, not many. Now, if he would just stick with that, once in Judea 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus died and rose again, and he is now by the right hand of God exalted. The work of God is finished. Never need be repeated, nor can it be added to. Again, he said it beautifully, but then he goes and gives four steps. I mean, he said it so well, and then he says this. Here's his four steps. The blood of Christ to deal with sins and guilt. Good. The cross of Christ to deal with sin, the flesh, and the natural man. Good. If he means by those words what we mean, and he doesn't. Thirdly, the life of Christ made available to indwell, recreate, and empower man. Number four, the working of death in the natural man that the indwelling life may be progressively manifest. So he's discarded everything he said in effect and cast the whole burden. As far as his readers are concerned, the people I've met who follow this, they're all caught between three and four. And they never get to four. They're all caught there working death in the natural man on a daily basis. That natural man just never gets dead enough. That natural man just never gets weakened enough. That natural man just never gets overcome enough. And they're always fighting against that natural man trying to consecrate him, trying to surrender him, trying to dedicate him, trying to make that death subjective that God says is objective. You see how the moment he's separated from objective to subjective, that's like saying to Abraham, now Abraham objectively, you understand, positionally, you're the father of a great nation. But conditionally, you've got a long ways to go yet. 
And so Abraham, you are going to have to die to your self-will and this self-effort on your part. Consecrate yourself and come to this brokenness of spirit. And Abraham, when you're in the right condition, then the filling will come and you will have a child. Boy, you'd have left Abraham with a burden he couldn't handle. He'd have been so confused. Now, he comes to the subject of bearing the cross. Page 12, he says, we shall approach our subject from a practical and experimental point of view. I don't know why you'd want to do that. Why not approach it from what it said? Page 31, the author says this. He warns us. The author warns us. He says, the cross here and throughout these studies is used in a special sense. Most readers will be familiar with the current use of the expression, the cross, to signify firstly the entire redemptive work accomplished historically in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this is the commentator now in a footnote of Watchman's book. In this and the following chapters, however, the author is compelled, for lack of an alternative term, to use the cross in a more particular and limited doctrinal sense in order to draw a helpful distinction, namely, that between substitution, that's what Christ did, and identification, that's what I do to identify myself with what he did, according to Watchman E. As being from the human angle, two separate aspects of the doctrine of redemption. The author has warned us that Watchman E is about to use the word the cross in a different sense than how the Bible uses it. And he's using that, he said, because he's seeking a term whereby he can separate the work of redemption from what Christ did objectively to basically what we do subjectively inside of us on a daily basis. So he's now made the work of redemption spread out. It's not historical. It's not something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's now something that happened then and is ongoing right now as I make it true in my experience. You follow that? And then in page 207, he says, before, however, we pass on the fourth aspect, which I shall call, watch me speaking, bearing the cross. You know, there's no such term. Page 223. On the other hand, it has made possible what we speak of as bearing the cross. That is, this is a key passage. He's going to define what he means by bearing the cross. That is our cooperation in the daily inworking of his death, whereby way is made in us for the manifestation of that new life through the bringing of the natural man progressively into the right place of subjection to the Holy Spirit. Did you follow all that? In other words, to watch me, the natural man is still here. Still alive. And he needs to be brought by me, the natural man, to a place of bearing the cross and dying and making true subjectively what God says is true objectively. Where I see the objective truth of Christ dying having direct application to me now and freeing me from sin now, he sees there a need for an ongoing and additional work. And that's where the heresy comes in, is it locks people in between the third and the fourth step and they never get out of it and they never overcome sin. Still on page 223, we're now touching more particularly on the matter of a progress in a life lived for God. Hitherto, in dealing with the Christian life, 
we've placed our main emphasis upon the crisis by which it is entered. Now our concern is more definitely with the walk of the disciple, having especially in view his training as a servant of God. It is of him that the Lord Jesus, whosoever doth not bear his cross, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. So we come to a consideration of the natural man and the bearing of the cross. He's introducing in his book his discussion on the natural man and bearing the cross. Now, according to the word of God, everything was crucified when Jesus died, right? I mean, doesn't it tell us that all, and didn't even watch when he say that everything died when Christ died, that we're all crucified? That when we're baptized into him, the old Adam is gone forever and there's nothing but the new, new Christ now? And that we're totally alive unto God? Didn't, didn't he say that? Doesn't the Bible say that? Didn't I say that? Then how is it that the natural man still has to bear the cross and die on a daily basis? How is it the natural man has to recapitulate what God did in Christ? What he sees is that I appropriate power. Now follow me. That I appropriate power through the Holy Spirit. Moment by moment. To enact in my experience what God enacted in Christ. And I do not teach. The Bible does not teach that I appropriate by the Holy Spirit the power to enact in my spirit. And what the Bible teaches is that when Christ died, I died with him and I am dead and free from sin. Just like Abraham was the father of a great nation. You remember our discussions on hope now? That hope is based on a certain fact. It is based on a reality that faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. By the way, slaughters that verse. Totally destroys the meaning of it. Faith is the substance. Faith is the reality. That's the reality. I don't create a second reality after the faith. I don't create an, an ongoing reality. The reality occurred in Christ. 2,000 years ago. Now, I understand there's people out there hearing this who say, but I've got this sin, I just can't overcome it. Surely there must be some kind of ongoing work in me. And the preachers are ready to supply it. They're ready to tell you to read your Bible and pray and go to church and get the principles down and confess your sins and fast and fight against sin and cast the devils out and deal with the generational sins. And there's a whole long list of things for you to do that is a big effort and a big work on your part. But it never gets you there. What we teach delivers from sin. Just look around. It delivers from sin. Watchman he gives four verses. He offers as the foundation for his teaching. On page 250 and 251. We're going to look at all four of those verses. Listen to this. First of all he says this. He calls it the subjective work of the cross. That's the title of the paragraph. We must keep before us now four passages from the Gospels. They are Matthew 10, 34-39, Mark 8, 32-35, Luke 17, 32-34, and John 12, 24-26. That's the four passages we'll read in a moment. He says again, these four passages have something in common. Now listen to what he says these four passages teach. And you listen as we read the passages in a moment and see if they teach this. In each, he says, you have the Lord himself speaking to us concerning the soul activity, soul activity of man. And in each, a different aspect or manifestation of the soul life. Now, you look for the term soul life in these passages. Now, listen to what he says. He says, Jesus makes it clear in these passages that the soul of man can be dealt with in one way and one way only. And that is by our bearing the cross daily and following him. 
He's gotten to the heart of his teaching that goes through all of his books here. One way and one way only, you're going to deal with this soul man, this natural man, and that is by bearing the cross daily and following him. Now let's see if that's what these verses teach. Now I have written them out here, the exact verses he gave. But I've also gone back and taken the context, the verses before and the verses after. And if you took the verses out of context, as he did, and as all the Christian life books do, then you could come up with that nonsense. But if you look at them in their context, then they're altogether different. Now, he starts off at Matthew 10, 34, and 39. I'm going to read what he gave first, then we'll read the context. Think not that I'm come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foe shall be those, those of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and falleth me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Did you see anything about soul life in there? You know what he does? He takes the Greek word here, life. And that word is translated life 40, 50 times. It's translated soul 40, 50 times. And he takes the two words and he puts them together and says it's soul life. In other words, he says it's the life that flows out of the soul. And then he takes the word soul, pulls it out of context. All you've got to do is get a concordance to run this down. And says the soul is not the individual. The soul is that humanish aspect of the individual, which is carnal and sinful and corrupt, which must be brought into subjection to the cross and transformed and then he suggests that we humans are living in a natural way by our soul life our soulish life our our adam self our carnal self our natural self our soul life which is the mind will and emotions and that that part has to be crucified somehow he makes a disconnect and thinks that something was crucified when christ died but then that thing that was crucified when christ died didn't affect the soul life. The soul life is still here and the soul life must have its own crucifixion now in our daily experience. Now, he had to create terminology to get to this. There were no biblical terminology for it. Now, let's look at the context of that. Now, well, I'm, I'm going to go back and read a half a dozen verses before those verses I just read. And let's see what the Bible means when it says, take your cross and follow me. When it says, he that saves his life shall lose it. He that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Before we do, let me say again, what he thinks these verses mean as he goes on teaching is that on a daily basis, you bear your cross by denying yourself, denying your drives and your lusts and so forth. And by uh, suffering the loss of your ambitions, of your, um, your hopes, your dreams, your, your energies, your powers and resources of mind and flesh and self, that you, you just die to all of that self-initiated response and obedience to God. And then when it says, he that findeth his life shall lose it, he translates that as he that preserves his soul life. In other words, keeps his natural man, the inner expression, his ego. He that preserves his ego will lose his ego, his soul life. Uh, but he that loses his ego and his soul life to God in the dying daily, then he will save his soul life by sanctifying it. Now, <laughs> you, got, you got to ring that thing pretty hard to get that out of it. But that's exactly what they teach, folks. And they teach you with utter confidence. 
And it runs through all these people's literature. Now look at the context. We're in Matthew uh, 10, uh, 6. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Verse 17, be aware of men for they deliver you the council. They'll scourge you in the synagogues. So they'll deliver you up to the Gentiles. 19, take no thought what you shall speak. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. Verse 21, brothers shall deliver up brother to death, to death, to death. Children rise up against their parents, cause them to be put to death. You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. He that endureth then, the same shall be saved. And fear not him which killed the body, verse 28, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Think not I came to bring peace but a sword. He that taketh not up his cross and followeth none after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth life for my sake in the gospel shall find it. Uh, can you see the context? Jesus very simply said to the disciples, I'm going to send you out to preach. They're going to beat on you. They're going to kill you. Your own kids are going to turn you over to the government to have you killed. Your parents will turn the kids over to the government to have them killed. This is going to be a very difficult job I've given you to do when you go out to preach this gospel. And if you don't take up your cross and follow me, then you're not worthy to be my disciple when you go out to preach this gospel. If you turn your back simply because they hit you six times in the face, simply because they beat up on you for preaching the gospel, you turn your back and run, you're not worthy to be my disciple. But if you'll take up your cross and follow me by going back into that marketplace where they beat you up last week, then you'll save your life. And that's what he challenged the disciples. It had nothing to do with some kind of uh, Buddhist inner deeper life dying to yourself. This was about real death. He used the phrase several times in the chapter. And so only by jerking that out of his context and then changing the meaning of such words as life and soul and death can you come up with his Buddhist Chinese approach to the Christian life, which has gotten so popular. Then in Mark 8, 32 through 35, his next passage he gives is, let me give the verses he gave, 32. And he spake that saying openly. Peter took him, began to rebuke him. That's where he starts the passage. He spake that saying openly. Peter took him, began to rebuke him. And when he turned about, he looked on his disciples and rebuked them, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him and his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake, and the gospel is the same, shall save it. And he goes on to point out that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to die daily and carry your cross. Now, why did he start verse 32 and not in verse 31, which says, And he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, and the third day rise again. And Peter said, Not so, Lord, verse 32, and began to rebuke him. And Jesus said, Peter, if you don't deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You can't be my disciple. Follow me where? He just said he was going to be rejected and killed. Peter said, no, you're not going to be killed. He said, I am going to be killed. And if you don't take your cross and follow me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Yeah. That context is real simple. He's not telling Peter to go out and, and begin to meditate and consider his ways and die to his self-will and self-drive. Jesus didn't worry about that because he knew he's fixing to crucify Peter in just a few days. Fixing to just kill him, man. Just wipe him out. Put him to death, bury him, and raise him again. And Peter was going to live by a different life from his and not going to have to clean up his own. Not going to have to reform the natural man. Not going to have to make changes in his soul life. He was going to become a partaker of the divine nature through the promises, by faith, without the deeds of the law. So Jesus didn't worry about Peter going into a deeper life 
transcendental state. He had absolute confidence that the death he was about to put Peter through and the resurrection would be sufficient to deliver him from sin and transform him. Now, he gives the next one, Luke 17, 32-34. This one's really strange. He says, 32, remember Lot's wife? Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you that night there shall be two in the bed. One shall be taken, the other shall be left. And that's all the verse he gives there. So it's if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life, you'll die daily according to him, you'll save it. And here's the context. 25. Speaking of himself, Jesus said, first he must suffer many things and be rejected this generation. Verse 31. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Verse 32, where he started. Remember Lot's wife? I'll tell you, in that night there should be two in the bed. The one should be taken, the other should be left. 35, he didn't give that. Two women should be grinding together. One should be taken, the other left. Two men should be in the field, one taken, the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? He said unto them, where the servant the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. So the disciples asked him where this event was going to take place when they should lose their life and not save it. Jesus said it will take place wherever the body is. That's where the eagles, the birds of prey, come and feed on the carcass. He's warned them about suffering and death. They said, where is it going to happen? Jesus said, anywhere the church is. Anywhere the body is, that's where they're going to come and put you to death. Anywhere they find a group of Christians, that's where the buzzards, the birds of prey are going to come and feast on the flesh of the church. So you're going to have to be ready to bear your cross and die just like I died. Never after the crucifixion did Jesus or the apostles ever tell anybody to bear their cross and follow me or take up the cross. After he had died on the cross, it was too late because everybody died. With him. If one died for all, then we're all dead. It's too late. Too late to tell him that. After that, all you get is Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Now, here's where he introduces, uh, if you didn't read his other literature, you wouldn't know this, but this is the seed of another heresy. Page 256. He said, remember Lot's wife? Why, remember Lot's wife? Because whosoever shall seek to gain his soul shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his soul shall save it alive. If I mistake not, he says, this is the passage in the New Testament that tells of our reaction to the rapture call. We may have thought that when the Son of Man comes, we shall be gathered to him automatically, as it were. Because of what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkle of at the last trump. Well, however we reconcile these two passages, this one in Luke's gospel should at least make us pause and reflect. For the emphasis here is very strongly upon one being taken and the other left. It is a matter of our reaction to the call to go. And on the basis of this, a most urgent appeal is made to be ready. What he's saying is, and from his other writings, that when the rapture comes, the whole church won't be raptured. Only part of it will be raptured. And that is the overcomers. That is those who've borne their cross and died daily and been ready and purified to be the bride of Christ. 
they will get taken to heaven at the first part of the tribulation. The rest of the Christians remain behind and suffer during the tribulation so they can be purified and the old man can die and the soul life can be crushed and then they qualify to be raptured at the end of the tribulation. Now that's where this thing is going to go when you start splitting Christians into those who've had the crises and those who hadn't. You follow? And his last one is John 12, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now, that passage has been many a Christian life sermon teaching that except a grain of wheat fall in the ground and die. I've heard many a sermon that said, listen, Christians, the reason you're not bearing fruit as a Christian is because you hadn't died. You will begin to bear fruit as a Christian if you'll just die to yourself. Just die to the old man, die to your carnality. If you'll die to yourself, then God can fill you and you'll begin to bear fruit. What's the context of this? Verse 27 through 33, he didn't read that part, didn't give us that reference. It keeps on reading when he says, if any man serve me, let him follow me. Where I am there shall my servant be also. 27 says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into the world. 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. 32, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. So when he said except a grain of wheat fall on the ground and died about as long, he was not telling them they needed to die. He was telling them he was going to die. And that when he died as a grain of wheat, that he wouldn't abide alone. When he came up out of the grave, he'd bring up five million Christians with him, resurrected at the same time. That's what he was saying. Rather than this being an exhortation for us to die so we could live, this was an exhortation that he was going to die, and when he died, we would die, and when he lived, we would live. So many times that's been yanked out of his context. Now he continues with this. Listen, listen to his reflection on these verses he just suggested we read. He says, as we have just seen, the soul life or natural life that is here in view is something further than what we have in those passages which are concerned with the old man and the flesh. <laughs> have we, did we learn that? Did we learn that the soul life or natural life is something more than that thing that died when Christ died? Did we learn that in the passage? I didn't learn that. Our old man has been finally and forever crucified. It is something done to be apprehended by divine revelation and then accepted by an act of simple faith. But there's a further aspect of the cross, namely... That implied an expression bearing his cross daily, which is before us now. The cross has borne me. Now I must bury it. And this bearing of the cross is an inward thing. It is this that we mean when we speak of the subjective working of the cross. Moreover, it is a continuous process, a step-by-step -step following him. It is this which is now brought before us in relation to the soul and as we have just said with an emphasis here that is not quite the same as the old man, we do not have here the crucifixion of the soul itself in the sense of our natural gifts and facilities, our personality, our individuality are to be put away altogether. The soul is still there with its natural endowments, but the cross is brought to bear upon it to bring those natural endowments into death, to put the mark of his death upon them, 
and thereafter, as God may be pleased, to give them back to us in glorious resurrection. So in other words, we don't enter into the resurrection of Christ by faith. We receive a resurrection after the mark of the cross has been placed upon us as we bear it on a daily basis. And that's like he had a split personality, like he wrote one part of the book one decade and the other part or later decade after he got into heresy or something. And there's much more, more incriminating, more revealing that we could go into, but for sake of time, we'll stop with that. I think you've gotten the point. I just wanted you to get the feel of how he ended up in error. I, for my own uh, satisfaction, when, when someone whom I respect, and I respect Watchman, he's dead now, but I respect his spirit and his love for the Lord and his suffering for Christ. He was in prison, died in prison uh, in the communist China. And when you respect a man and you have honor for him and you correct his error, I have this need to know how he got there as a warning to myself. And also, I, I like to see the step that brought him to that error. Before you can really call someone an heretic in a certain area, you need to know clearly what they taught and why. You need to understand them thoroughly. And I've read most all his books, read some of them many times. I read this one three or four or five times that we just went through. Don't just read it, but I study it passage by passage, front to back, mark, notes, notes in the computer, notes in the book. Uh, underline it with half a dozen different colors. I mean, I, I devour the thing so I know what he was teaching. I don't just jerk stuff out of context. Now, here's some of his cautions. Page 84, he says, We need to guard against being over-anxious about the subjective side of things and so become turned in upon ourselves. And yet, that's what he led us to do. Page 236, he says, In my conversation with younger brothers and sisters, now these are people who are under his ministry, one question comes up again and again. It is, how can I know I'm walking in the Spirit? How do I distinguish which prompting within me is from the Holy Spirit and which is from myself? It seems that all are alike in this, but some have gone further. They are trying to look within, to differentiate, to discriminate, to analyze, and in doing so are bringing themselves into deeper bondage. Now, he said that was a problem with the people he was teaching. That they were self-introspective to the point of coming into bondage, trying to know and discern their self-inside. Yet, if you read his teaching, his very teaching is that we should discern the difference between soul and spirit within ourselves and walk after the spirit so we can bring about this death. He says, now this is a situation which is really dangerous to Christian life for inward knowledge will never be reached along the barren path of self-analysis. I mean, he's wise enough to know that. And then he says, we're never told in the word of God to examine our inward condition. That way leads only to uncertainty vacillation and despair how many people I met following his teachings that that's where they were page 242 he says I repeat that I do not mean that we should be forever looking within and asking now is this soul or is it spirit that will never get us anywhere it is darkness now I think he was a sincere man who read the Bible saw the gospel clearly but I think his oriental background, maybe his Buddhist knowledge, the overall approach to life was one of asceticism, was one of fasting and withdrawal and retreat and 
putting down feelings, be they good or bad feelings, putting down impulses and becoming rather neutral. That's the kind of thing that was behind his thinking, the kind of thing that was motivating it. And so it comes through in his teaching. Now, I'm going to read Colossians 2 in, in closing and see how different. We've studied this already. We've taught this already, but I want you just to see it again to refresh us and see what the Word of God says about our death, burial, and resurrection. This is the best summary passage in the New Testament on it. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. In whom, speaking of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in spirit, joying and beholding your order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk you in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding therewith with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you. Remember me telling you the word spoil is the word for taking the valuables away from your enemy. Of stripping them of the things on their body or their person after you've slain them on the battlefield. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition, tradition of men and the rudiments, basic elements of the world and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you're complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. Watch Benny's teaching. The end result is that it spoils Christians. It strips away what God gave them. He even spoils them of what he gives them in the first part of his book. He gives them the truth and then he spoils them of it. And places the burden back upon them to repeat what Christ has already done for them and to them. Beware lest any man spoil you for you're complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you're circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body that sends the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein you're risen with him through dying daily, bearing the cross, no, through the faith of the operation of God. That's not your faith in God's operation. That's God's faith in his own operation. That is the faith which is the operation of God who has raised him from the dead and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him. See, I'm already totally quickened having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way and nailing it to the cross, having spoiled principalities and powers. He's overcome the devil as well. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Verse 20, wherefore, if you be dead with Christ, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, folks, that includes my soul life. That includes my natural man. That includes my old man. That includes everything. If you be dead with Christ from rudiments of the world, why is though living in the world are you subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which indeed he admits that if you go back and dedicate your life to this ascetic lifestyle, if you go back and surrender your soul and dedicate yourself and fast and pray and go around with the morbid, moaning, uh, fasting look on your face, you know. He said, listen to what he says about it. Which have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship. 
In other words, people who have that spirit about them, that broken spirit, that contrite heart, who walk about with that deep spiritual sensitivity. He said, it has a show of wisdom in will worship. It shows how wise you are. And he said, it really does. It makes you really look wise. And it makes you really look, boy, he's, he's got a strong will. See how he stains from all those different things? Hey, fast and won't laugh at your jokes or anything. And humility. Oh, he, and he's so humble. Notice how he just is careful not to criticize anybody. And, and neglecting of the body. You see how he just doesn't pay any attention to when he's hungry or you know, when he's cold or when he's suffering or anything. He just looks like he wants to suffer. Neglecting the body. Not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. In fact, I don't see that man doing anything for the flesh. He totally denies his flesh. That man has totally given up all expressions of the flesh. And he just lives in another realm. I, I can't even get close to him. He's just out. He's out of space for me, you know. But he sure is spiritual minded and sure is wise. Isn't he, isn't he wonderful? He said, that, yeah, it does that. It'll give you that look. It'll, it'll impress people. He said, wherefore if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why are you like that? <laughs> Why are you like that? You see, when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's not because he came to make you poor in spirit. It's because he came to deliver you from it. It's just like he said, blessed are those that persecuted. He didn't come to persecute you. He came to deliver you from it. Blessed those that hunger after righteousness is not because he wants to keep you hungry, because he said you'll be filled. And when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's because that's a horrible condition to be in. And Christ didn't come to make us poor anything. He came to fill us up with his spirit, and there's nothing poor about that. And we got Christians running around trying to seek a poor spirit. And you'll never attract anybody to Christ with that. All you'll attract is a bunch of hypocrites who want to have that same aura that you've got and make everybody else feel as, um, as inferior as you do. <laughs> and by the way, there's paragraphs in his writings where he points that out. About how you'll start impressing people, impacting people with this mystical air you've got. And it's absolutely sickening when you read it. Finally, in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Quit thinking about your flesh, your body, your natural man, about your soul life. Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Do you know what you're going to have to do if you're going to carry your cross or die daily? You're going to have to go to Christ and get your life back. You have to go up to heaven, go to God, get inside God, get inside Christ, and get your life back because the Bible said your life is hid with Christ in God. You're going to have to bring it down here and try to kill it again. And he said you can't kill it again because he that died for sin died once. And that's it. Can't die again. And you are dead. Your life is hid with Christ in God. So he said if you're going to give your attention to anything. You want to, you want to focus on yourself. You want to get sanctified. You want to get a, be a better man. Then stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at how you're doing. Stop examining your soul. Stop worrying about whether you're walking after this spirit or that spirit or whether you're humble or proud, set your affection on things above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Worship God. Love Him. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. You do that. And the Holy Spirit will take over and lead you and guide you and you'll reckon yourself dead and you will sin no more and you'll walk in victory. Amen. It's a matter of focus. 
Watch me says so many good things, but by the time you get through his book, even when I read it again, I am depressed when I get through it. I feel like such a lousy Christian when I read his book. I feel so, uh, because he makes me look at myself. And the burden he puts on me makes me think, well, you ought not go teach the Bible study tonight. You really don't have anything to offer them, you know. I mean, after all, you really need to quit witnessing, too. What, what you need to do is just, you know, just start fasting and, and moan, moan all the time because of your poor condition. And, and maybe if you could, and that's not what God came to do. That's not what Jesus came to give us. He came to give us life and life more abundantly. And that's found by setting our affection on heaven where that life is hid in Christ in God. Colossians is a beautiful passage of scripture in regard to all this. Now, I don't enjoy defaming Watchman Nee, but the Bible's written for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And, and we've got to correct error. And everywhere I go, people throw Watchman Nee's phrases back at me. They throw his definitions back. The books you read follow his definitions. And if you're going to understand this gospel of sanctification, if you're going to be delivered from sin God's way, then we're going to have to root out that false ground on which you have entrenched yourself and has not delivered you from sin. And when you understand and see this gospel of sanctification in its glory and simplicity of faith, you will be thrilled and you will walk in joy and victory and sin not. I guarantee it. If, you're, if you have the Spirit of God. All right. We'll stop there.